This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In September 1913, two children were walking along the New Jersey side of the Hudson River when they came upon a grisly scene. Along the shoreline lay the top half of a woman's torso. It had been placed inside a pillowcase, along with a large rock to weigh it down. The bottom half was found the next day, three miles downriver. With no identifying marks on the body parts, the only clue was the letter A that had been found on a tag attached to the pillowcase. Investigators contacted the manufacturer, who, in turn, directed them to the only store in New York City that sold the same ones. Following the lead, authorities reached out to the dealer, who was able to provide a sales receipt for those exact pillowcases. It showed that the customer also bought a mattress, box spring, and pillows. Not only that, but it also contained the customer's name and address. The items were delivered to a Mr. A. Van Dyke, and the address was located on the third floor of an apartment building in Upper Manhattan. Police were assigned to keep an eye on the apartment, but after several days with no sign of anyone coming or going, they headed inside. According to the superintendent, the unit was rented to a married couple believed to be from Germany. But the tenant's name was not Van Dyke. It was Schmidt. Yet, when detectives entered the unoccupied apartment, they found men's clothing stitched with the name A. Van Dyke. There were also documents addressed to Hans Schmidt. That was just the beginning of what they found. There were bloodstains on the walls, a knife covered in blood was left in the kitchen, and it was clear that someone had recently given the floor a thorough cleaning. A closer look at the documents left around the apartment showed several letters sent from a woman named Anna Amuller. The return address wasn't far, so police paid her a visit, hoping for some answers. Learning that Anna had taken a job as the live-in housekeeper for a local Catholic church, detectives felt they might be finally getting somewhere. But when they visited the church and asked the senior pastor if they could speak with Anna, they were told that she had been transferred to another church, St. Joseph's. Before leaving, Detectives asked if the pastor had ever heard the name A. Van Dyke or Hans Schmidt. He didn't know anyone named Van Dyke, but he certainly knew Hans Schmidt, or as he called him, Father Schmidt. The pastor told investigators that the German-born priest had moved to St. Joseph's Church at the same time as Anna. It was in the middle of the night when police knocked on the door at St. Joseph's Rectory. Father Schmidt was sleeping and had to be woken up by an understandably concerned fellow priest. When it became clear why the detectives were there to see him, Schmidt immediately confessed to murdering Anna. He claimed he did it out of love, and with his fellow clergymen gathered around, 
he proceeded to describe in gruesome detail how he killed her and dismembered the body. It had been twelve days since the search began for the murderer. As the priests of St. Joseph's Church looked on, Father Hans Schmidt was handcuffed and escorted to an awaiting police car. He would be charged with first-degree murder, but as the investigation continued, it became obvious that, for this priest, killing was just the tip of the iceberg. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Hans Schmidt was born in Germany in 1881. According to a friend, he was well-liked growing up and considered a promising student with a brilliant intellect. His exemplary behavior, however, wasn't genuine, and it didn't last very long. It was around age 20 when people started to notice a dramatic change in his public persona. Typically reserved, he was becoming increasingly erratic and aggressive. His family had every reason to be concerned, because Hans Schmidt came from a long line of mental illness, and even as a child, the signs were all there. At a young age, Schmidt enjoyed some pretty disturbing pastimes. For one, he spent a good deal of time at a meat processing plant in his town. Apparently, the little boy was absolutely fascinated by the killing of animals, and showed up almost every day to watch the carnage. He reportedly did a fair share of killing animals on his own. According to his parents, on one occasion, their lovable son sliced the heads off two geese he found on their property. For the rest of the day, Schmidt kept the heads in the pockets of his pants. As he got older, his growing devotion to religion was challenged by overwhelming desires to dismember animals, drink blood, and have sex with both men and women. Schmidt took all of this with him when he entered seminary school in the early 1900s. Perhaps not surprisingly, Schmidt was arrested for creating fake diplomas for some of his classmates who had failed out. It was only because of his father's insistence that his son was not mentally well that the charges were dropped. Despite being described as morally abnormal, Schmidt was ordained by the Catholic Church in 1904 and began his parish assignments. Just a few short years later, church officials started receiving complaints about Father Schmidt. It seemed both parishioners and priests were concerned about his increasingly bizarre sermons and the strange ways he performed Mass. He had also been accused of molesting altar boys on more than one occasion. Several women in his congregation admitted to having affairs, and it was well known that the priest often sought the company of prostitutes. As the assignments became fewer and farther between, and with his reputation irreparably tarnished, Father Hans Schmidt left Germany and headed for the United States. The Catholic priest arrived in Louisville, Kentucky in 1909, but his time in the Bluegrass State was short-lived. When it became apparent to the church that Schmidt would be an unwanted problem, he was quickly transferred. That move took him north to St. Boniface Church in New York City. It was here that Hans Schmidt met Anna Amuller. The 21-year-old Austrian immigrant had arrived in the country just a few years earlier and worked as a housekeeper at the church. 
Schmidt later recalled that when he first saw her, a voice from above ordered him to love her. It took several rejections and a lot of convincing, but Anna eventually gave in and began a relationship with a 31-year-old priest. At the same time Schmidt was involved with Anna, he was also in a relationship with a man named Ernest Muret. The Manhattan dentist and the Catholic priest were partners in a scheme to counterfeit $10 and $20 bills. It was also reported that the pair were working on an elaborate insurance scam targeting his parishioners. None of this, however, would come to light until after his arrest. In the meantime, when the church eventually found out about his affair with Anna, Schmidt was transferred yet again. This time it was off to St. Joseph's Church in Harlem, but the move did not put an end to their relationship. In February 1913, the two were married in a secret wedding performed by Schmidt himself. He also provided the couple's marriage certificate, where he used the name John Schmidt. In an effort to keep their marriage a secret, the couple rented an apartment not far from the church. It was the same address detectives would visit less than a year later in their search for a killer. While Schmidt's intention was to hide his relationship from the church, sometimes it didn't look like he was trying very hard. He reportedly enjoyed having sex inside St. Joseph's Church, and apparently nothing was sacred. It was during one of these holy encounters that Schmidt claimed he received another command from on high. This time, though, it wasn't to love Anna, it was to sacrifice her. While the two were fooling around on the altar, the ethereal voice kept repeating the order. It was so real, he was compelled to tell Anna what he was hearing. She thought he was just being crazy and didn't take it seriously. A couple of months later, Anna announced that she was pregnant with the couple's first child. Yet, the happy moment was lost on Hans Schmidt. To him, the news meant a certain end to his life within the ranks of the Catholic Church. Their marriage may not have been valid, but a baby sure would be. So, on the night of September 2nd, 1913, Schmidt decided to end the relationship. As one investigator at the time put it, what followed was butchery of a most revolting nature. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. At just before midnight, he entered the apartment. Anna was already asleep, so didn't hear it when he crossed the bedroom floor and stopped at her side of the bed. With a large knife, he leaned over and slashed her neck. Some reports claim that, as she was dying, he drank her blood. Dragging the body to the bathroom, the reverend cut it into seven pieces, 
which were then stuffed into several pillowcases. Throwing some rocks in there to make sure the bundles were heavy, Schmidt boarded the ferry to New Jersey, and when they were halfway across, dumped them overboard. He then made the round trip back to Manhattan, where he presided over Mass at St. Joseph's. When Holy Communion was over, he left the church and headed back to the apartment to clean up the gruesome scene. But the bloodstains were everywhere, on the walls, floors, and furniture. Despite hours of scrubbing, there was still plenty of evidence splattered all over. Giving up, Schmidt returned to the rectory, had dinner, and went to bed. Later, as authorities were placing him under arrest, he repeatedly told officers that sacrifices should be consumed in blood. The trial began on December 7, 1913. The fact that Schmidt had murdered Anna was not up for debate. The defense team argued that the priest was overcome with bloodlust, which had impacted his already questionable judgment. His lawyers claimed that Schmidt was clinically insane, evident not only by the voices he heard in his head, but also because of the long family history of mental illness. According to one psychologist who took the stand for the defense, close to 60 of Schmidt's current and past relatives exhibited signs of mental instability. Based on this, it was obvious to the defense that Schmidt was insane and should not be held accountable for his actions. For their part, the prosecution argued that Schmidt was perfectly sane and knew exactly what he was doing when he killed Anna. They brought in experts who testified that, despite his attempts to appear wholly crazy, as Anna used to affectionately call him, he was nothing more than a con man. When detectives took the stand, they testified that Schmidt admitted to buying a handsaw and a large kitchen knife just days before the murder. How the priest had snuck into the apartment and slit Anna's throat while she was sleeping. How he then used the hacksaw to dismember her body with surgical precision. And when asked why a priest would have such skills, how Schmidt had taken it as a compliment, stating that he had briefly attended medical school prior to joining the seminary. The prosecution told the court about Schmidt's long history of criminal activity, from the counterfeiting operation and insurance scams to impersonating a doctor where he allegedly made extra income performing illegal abortions. Jurors were told about his numerous transfers from one church to another for various disciplinary issues. That's when prosecutors brought up nine-year-old Alma Catherine Kellner from Louisville, Kentucky. The little girl went missing in December 1909 while on her way to morning mass at nearby St. John's Church. Authorities believed early on that she had been kidnapped as part of a ransom scheme, but as time passed, so did their hope of finding her alive. Just over six months later, the little girl was found buried in a shallow grave in the basement of St. John's. Like Anna Amuller, she too had been dismembered. When detectives in New York contacted authorities in Kentucky, they discovered the priest on duty the day Alma Kellner disappeared was none other than Father Hans Schmidt. He was transferred to New York before the body was found, leaving the church's janitor to take the fall for the murder. The janitor would go on to serve nearly 25 years in prison for something prosecutors were now saying was obviously the work of the deranged priest. While the coincidence was hard to ignore, Schmidt insisted he had nothing to do with the little girl's death. That, however, would be up to the jury to decide. 
It was just after Christmas, 1913, when both sides presented their closing statements. While the defense team held on to the claim that their client was innocent on the grounds of insanity, the state argued that Hans Schmidt was a calculating killer. As the headline speculated the impending verdict, jurors were behind closed doors, trying to reach a decision. After almost 35 hours of exhausting deliberation, the jurors concluded that they could not decide. With two of the 12 jurors holding out for a not guilty verdict due to insanity, the foreman finally told the judge that they were deadlocked. On December 30th, 1913, the judge declared a mistrial. The insanity plea had worked, but whatever satisfaction Schmidt and his lawyers were enjoying would be short-lived. A few weeks later, on January 19, 1914, the second trial began in the murder case of Anna Amuller. By then, prosecutors had collected more information on a possible motive for the killing. It turned out that five months before the murder, Schmidt hired a woman to impersonate Anna in order to purchase a life insurance policy in her name. Upon her death, he would receive a $5,000 payout, the equivalent of around $150,000 today. The court also heard that police in Germany considered him a prime suspect in the murder of a young woman before he left for the United States. With an irrefutable pattern of behavior clearly established by prosecutors, it was now up to the defense to convince the jury that Schmidt was insane. But when the lawyer began his opening statement by saying that his client was mentally unwell, Schmidt apparently stood up and yelled that he was fit to stand trial. It was the judge, though, who had the last word. When instructing the jury on making their decision, he simply told them to use common sense. Before heading into deliberation, the judge said, If you are satisfied that the defendant purchased the knife and saw with which he cut up the body, thinking of using them as he did, and if you are satisfied that in the middle of the night he went to the flat, took off his coat, and cut her throat, and then cut up her body, what conclusion do you come to? Bear in mind, it isn't every form of mental unsoundness that excuses a crime. On February 5, 1914, after just three hours, the jury returned with their verdict. They found Father Hans Schmidt guilty of first-degree murder. It would take another week before the sentence was announced. Death by electrocution. Asked by the judge if he had anything to say, the priest simply acknowledged that he was satisfied with the verdict, adding that he would rather die right away than wait. But as his lawyers submitted appeal after appeal, the execution was postponed over and over again. He sat in his cell at New York's infamous Sing Sing prison for over a year, waiting. In December 1914, as the appeals failed and the inevitable grew closer, Schmidt told officials that he was not actually insane, but had just been faking it the whole time. Perhaps in a last-ditch effort to save himself, he also said that someone else had murdered Anna. That person, he claimed, was none other than his partner in crime, Ernest Murette, the Manhattan dentist. Schmidt said that Anna died unexpectedly after the dentist attempted to perform an abortion. Wanting to protect his friend, the priest said that he allowed authorities to believe it was his doing. True or not, the new information did not change his situation. On the morning of February 18, 1916, 
A year and a half after the brutal killing of Anna Mueller, Hans Schmidt was taken from his cell and escorted to the last place he'd ever see. At just before 6 a.m., as he was being led into the death chamber, he stopped and said, I want to say one word before I go. I beg forgiveness of all I have offended or scandalized, and I forgive all those who have offended against me. He was then strapped to the electric chair. When asked if he had any final words, Schmidt simply said, My last word is to say goodbye to my dear old mother. With that, the switch was thrown, and at 5.52 a.m., the first bolt of electricity surged through the chair. Six minutes later, and after two more jolts, Hans Schmidt was declared dead. His family back in Germany had made plans to have the body returned to his hometown. With the start of World War I a few months later, however, that never happened. Instead, the prison chaplain arranged to have Schmidt buried somewhere in New York State. The location was kept a secret. To this day, Father Hans Schmidt is the only Catholic priest in U.S. history ever to be executed. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Haley Gray. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.